Lord, in response and obedience to that psalm set to music, we recount your deeds that were evident among us just last week. During the baptism service, as we mentioned briefly, Father, again this morning, we just remember the stories of six of yours that gave their story, how they came to Christ. Lord, and we rejoice now as we behold in our mind's eye the trophy case of heaven with six saints standing inside of it now, Lord Jesus, due to your grace and your power to save and the salvation that belongs to our God. And we see them standing there. We see Tim and Melanie, Travis and Katie, Ronnie and Wayne. Lord, we thank you, Father, that you, Lord Jesus, have so many seats in the stands of heaven yet to be filled apparently that you are causing your word and your gospel to go forward and the harvest to continue to come in. And we thank you, Lord, that you are inscribing in your Lamb's book of life more names add to the roster to prove what you can do. We recount your deeds this morning. Lord, there is nothing more magnificent, no example more great to show off your power and your grace your majesty, and your glory than the saving of a soul. There is nothing on this earth that can sanctify that which is condemned to hell. There's only one sanctifying power in this universe strong enough to render a sinner holy. And that is your blood, dear Jesus. There is no other way. There is no other means. There's no other truth and no other life. And we are here because of that precious blood. And we celebrate this morning with those, Lord, who confess their hope and faith and their salvation in the blood of Jesus last week. We recount your deeds. Lord, we also recount your deeds as we will see them in your words that you recorded for us. Lord, we have enough here to ponder, consider, and meditate on in your word to carry us through this life. And if we had two lives, three lives, Lord, to live, surely it would not be enough time and we would not have the mental capacity to contain all the beauty therein contained. But Father, we do pray that your Spirit would guide us as we study, as we, Lord, endeavor to understand more about your Word, its beauties, and what it declares of you. If this service achieves that purpose, Lord, it will, because, it will be because the Spirit used this time, not because of the eloquent words of man, not because of even how attentive we were in listening, but instead the work of the Spirit to use these words, this time, and our minds to grow the seed of the Word within our heart. And I pray that that would take place and that on the tables of our hearts would be written your truth, that our faith and confidence would grow so as we live our lives outside of these walls that people would see the Word of God evident in the things we choose to do and the stories we choose to tell and our own history as we record to others how Christ has intervened in our lives and to the instructions that we give our children and to the message that we proclaim to the world. In all of this, may you be glorified, O God. And may your word call attention to those areas of weakness that we can leave on the altar here this morning and inspire us, Lord Jesus, to be sharper. Just as your word is powerful, sharp and quick and able to discern. We thank you, Father, for this time that your grace has purchased for us. We pray that it would be time that we use, Lord Jesus, wisely 
to understand you. In your name we pray, Lord. Before we get to Psalm chapter 3 this morning, there's one other accompanying passage that I'd like to draw to your attention out of Job chapter 2. We'll use Job's example briefly because it's similar, it seems to me, to David's example in this chapter. David is under distress, as we mentioned before, in Psalm chapter 3, under circumstances that are difficult to imagine unless you've been in a situation similar to his. And some of you may have. I have not, but you can imagine what it might be like to have your own son turn against you. And Absalom wasn't the only son of David that was rebellious and actually mobilized forces to oppose his father. But more than just oppose his father, David says in Psalm chapter 2 that those who oppose the Lord's anointed will inevitably submit. And this was our message a month ago. David had the shocking awareness as he saw his own son's rebellion, not just the shame of a parent, whose kid is acting in an unruly way and despising their authority, but he also had the shame of knowing that his son was rebelling against God's anointed. His son was rebelling against God. That did not speak well of him as a father. I'm sure he felt. Did not speak well of much of anything. And imagine how much worse it would be as you are chased from your throne. You're chased from your seat of authority, at least physically, and you're a refugee. You're out there a fugitive, as it were, from a populace that is encouraged to rebel by your own son against your God-stated authority. Job's situation was similar in that the things that were secure around him, his family, his prosperity, his influence, completely fell apart around him. And his story is pretty famous, but I just wanted to draw your attention to a few verses We may have forgotten the specifics at the beginning of Job. In verse 4, Satan's having this conversation with the Lord and he says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of pottery, that is Job, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Notice in verse 9, his wife says to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Verse 10, he says to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall, not, shall we not receive evil? Evil. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The advice of Job's wife is shocking as we read, curse God and die. And I think the attitude of her advice and her comments and the shortcomings, the non-existent faith, is similar to the attitude of the foes of David who would say in Psalm chapter 3, verse 1, how many are my foes? He says, many are rising against me. In verse 2, they are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Curse God and die. 
Your circumstances prove that he's not going to help you and is unable to do so, was the confession of Job's wife. And David's enemies would have him believe the same thing. Your life has fallen apart to the degree that you have no grounds to base your security and hope. Not even God can help you now. Otherwise, in their estimation, he already would have. This is the voice of the accuser. And whether it comes from family, a rebellious son, or a wicked adversary, or the devil himself, it should be shunned every time. And I believe in this is a lesson that we can learn from Psalm chapter 3. But this test was extreme. From the far-reaching declaration of lordship in Psalm chapter 2, we find this transition to this very personal test in Psalm chapter 3. David declares that if anyone is to plot and rage against the, like the kings of the earth do against the authority of the Lord, against His anointed, they will be judged. They will be torn down. He says in Psalm chapter 2, verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son in expression of submission. Lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. And then if your Bible includes the title of the next chapter, the one that we will consider this morning, notice when it says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. What an extreme test. Was David willing to be as strong in his words against those who would oppose his anointed to his own son as he was the wicked countries, the pagan enemies of God's throne that were around him? What a test. It's easy to say it against those enemies that we often think of the bad guys. But how much harder would it be to to make that bold declaration against your own household? Nevertheless, that was the case. In this instance, David is running from his own son who has taken up his sword and whipped up this coup against his father who is the Lord's anointed. What an extreme personal test of the Lordship of Christ and whether David will stand for the authority of God or whether he will compromise and bow and somehow try to smooth this situation over and pretend that things aren't as bad as they truly were to have your own son reject the words of a father and the authority and lordship of God all in one fell swoop. Is there anything redemptive that can come of such a situation? Is there anything that you can hang on to for hope when life is this Hard to deal with? Again, I think Psalm 3 tells us how to do that. And as we see the words of David play out, it's like a backdrop of oppression that sets the stage for the glory of salvation. When things are so difficult, so hard for man to reconcile, so beyond our comprehension for why they even exist, against this backdrop, when salvation is clearly proclaimed, lived and held on to at least by faith for those who are under extreme duress, it provides an amazing backdrop for the glory of the Lord to be shown through the confession of an individual who is unshaken in the worst of circumstances. David, like Job, seems to have a sovereign call from God to display through his example a groundbreaking revelation to God's covenant people. And that example is this. That message is this, God's favor and blessings transcend this life. Though his salvation is evidenced by circumstances in this realm, it is not confined 
to temporary prosperity. I'll say that again. God's favor and blessings, they transcend this life and what this life can promise. When the Bible speaks of salvation, it speaks most ultimately about the salvation of our soul. When it speaks of healing, it speaks most ultimately about the perfection that only heaven can contain. When it speaks about righteousness, when it speaks about holiness, it means the kind of perfection and holiness that is evidenced by the one and only sinless man, Jesus Christ. And salvation carried through to its ultimate scriptural evidence circumstantially in fruition, all there for us to behold, speaks of a place and a realm beyond what this life can contain now. In the meantime, does God have blessings and provision? Absolutely. And do they speak to His power? Every bit. And we see that in this psalm. But it's an important lesson for the Hebrews to learn then and for us to learn now that God's promises in salvation are not confined to this life. Someone can take your life but they can't touch your soul if your soul is hid in Christ. Your own family can turn against you, but you will not be disowned from your heavenly Father if your hope is in Jesus Christ. The worst of circumstances can be brought to bear in your surroundings, in your experience, in your testimony. But if your life is hid in Christ, salvation for you is secure. And when the world around David fell apart, even his own household, and when the world of Job collapsed in flames and boils and sores and betrayal, it was evident through their faith, the faith of these two men, that the salvation that the Word of God speaks about was bigger than maybe we first imagined. It transcended this life. This life and the evidences that are around us speak to the power of God, but this life is too small to contain the perfection of what Jesus Christ purchased and accomplished in His death. And sometimes, as we get this perspective that only the Word of God can bring, the harshness of our surroundings emphasizes to us the perfection of salvation, that it's something bigger and better than anything this life can promise. This lesson comes to us through this dramatic testimony of David and Job, and both of these men I admire so much, because even with their, compared to our, limited understanding of the covenants of God, they evidence such a great faith. Just as we, like they, I'm sure, were tempted to doubt the goodness and power of God in our trials, the enemy of our souls also assumes that he can threaten our life and therefore break our spirit. But if you have a faith in God, Ultimately, your soul is untouchable. A little recommended reading for you. I might have mentioned it before, but in our Psalm a Month series, I've been consulting a resource called The Treasury of David. It's a compilation put together by Charles H. Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers I like to read a lot. And he wrote a commentary of the entire Psalms, but he also includes, includes in his treasury a commentary of many men who wrote about, studied the Psalms and recorded it and I usually go through that to double-check my own thinking, try to get on the right path as I'm considering the meaning of a psalm and maybe grab a quote for you. But in all my reading, my quote for you this morning came from a very unlikely source. It didn't come from the treasury of David. It came from a rock and roll song that I happened to hear from an upstart Christian garage band years ago. And for some reason, I couldn't get this quote out of my head. And I thought it, was, it stated the theme of this psalm so succinctly, I just couldn't help but share it with you this morning. I'll see if I can do it off the top of my head. I'm not promising that this is verbatim. 
but the beginning of the song is very dissonant. It's not very well recorded, and the music is very heavy, and you probably can't understand any of the words except the intro where a man says over the microphone, never mind the scientists with their crooked lies. Never mind society with their shifty eyes. You can take away my worldly things. You can take away my life. But one thing you can't touch, my faith in God. Those two references, society and scientists, really bring into the modern age some of our own enemies that we face around us. We find ourselves in many situations just like David, with enemies about us on every side that presume if they can, if they can take our life, if they can invade our circumstances, if they can just have power over us, then they can break our spirit. But they cannot if our faith is in the Lord. Never mind the scientists with their crooked lies. Jesus remains Lord. Never mind society with their shifty eyes. Whatever they advertise that you should focus your security, hope, and affections on. You can take all those things away. My worldly things. You can take away my life itself. But one thing you cannot touch. Satan, the world, then any doubting voice. My faith in God. As we begin to read in this psalm, notice in the first and second verses, David says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. In this poem, I imagine in my mind as I was thinking, these are songs that were written. And usually you might have a Sunday school image that comes to mind like me, where if you hear a psalm, you imagine David strumming on his harp. This psalm is very pointed, emphatic, aggressive, and strong, though. I'm not sure if just a harp alone would musically convey the force of what David is trying to get across. And maybe the music I was describing earlier would help. A little distortion on the harp, maybe. Some pounding drums. Some shouting voices. And at the beginning of this psalm, point number one of this message, it explains the degrees of opposition that David faces around him. And this psalm unfolds in threes. In describing the degrees of opposition, David goes from how many are my foes, how many are my enemies, that is to say those that are opposed against me, but then he uses many again, many are rising against me. So not only do I have stated enemies who oppose my position in the Lord and my confidence and faith in Him, that oppose my lordship or my kingship under God and my authority, my rule and my position and calling, Not only do they oppose me, but they are motivated, actively opposing. They're rising up against me. They're taking up arms to in aggression to rise, to meet me and unseat me. And then in verse two, again, he says, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And that message is one that the enemy may think he be he has power over. That is our souls. But again, if he cannot be effective in these degrees of opposition, particularly number three, his plans will ultimately fall short. That is to say, whatever forces are allied against the people of God, if they cannot take away for us our hope in Christ, they cannot ultimately be successful. How many are your foes? Many many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. 
the enemies that surrounded David, supposed themselves to systematically be able to devour every last reason for him to hope, to utterly discourage and remove from him his joy, his faith, his hope that tomorrow was in God's hands. And as we begin to see the source of David's strength, we will see how that systematic power that the enemy claims he has to devour our hope is ineffective when we find our faith in him. In verse 3, the second point of this message, effective defenses. After David gives us a three-part explanation of the degrees of opposition, he explains in a three-part way the effectiveness of his own defenses. And none of these are physical. He says in chapter 3, but you, or in verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. So what is our response in prayer and in faith to those who would oppose us on all sides? What is our response to those who would say that there is no salvation for you in God? Your God is just a crutch, just a figment of your imagination, just something that weak men rely on to get them through the day. The Lord Himself is a shield about us under those circumstances. He is our glory and He is the lifter of our head. And I would encourage you while our time here in discussing the psalm is limited to maybe take and meditate on each one of those. When we consider effective defenses against the enemy, spiritual warfare, needless to say, is a term that we hear a lot. People talk a lot about waging war in the spirit, about the, uh, the, the warfare and the opposition that Christians face. And a lot of times we describe you know, our Christian life in these terms, and rightly so, the Bible talks much about spiritual warfare. But it's important to ascertain from this scripture right here what are effective defenses against the enemies of our soul. And all of them are the Lord. The Lord in three ways revealed here. First of all, as a shield. If the Lord is a shield and a buckler to us, like Psalm 91 declares, and this word seems to indicate in the Hebrew, it's a glorious picture of defenses that are impenetrable. The shield of the Lord that protects us is one that is comprehensive and secure. There is no darts from the evil one that can penetrate the shield of faith. Paul picks up on this imagery, and I'll recall to your mind at the end of Ephesians chapter 6, we talked about how even the Roman shield that is pictured in Paul's example and his object lesson was one that was covered in hides and often dipped in water. And when it was carried into battle, the flaming darts of the wicked one were extinguished against its surface. So it not only had the ability to protect, the, to protect us from the onslaught of the enemy, but also to eliminate the power of his weapons. His weapons were ineffective against the shield of faith. And David uses the same imagery in Psalm chapter 3 when he says, You, O Lord, are a shield about me. And secondly, when we consider our effective defenses, if the Lord is our glory, then we are uniquely positioned, no matter how difficult circumstances are around us, for a win-win situation. I remind you of the verse in Job that we, we read earlier, when Job said to his wife, these words of exhortation and reprimand, you still hold fast to your integrity, she accuses him, curse God and die. And the response, this 
response that did not come in sin, but was spoken truthfully, as the word says by Job, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall shall we not receive evil? At that moment in Job's confession, it seems that his faith was such that if the Lord was glorified in his suffering or the Lord was glorified in his prosperity, he was content to accept either situation. Only let the Lord be my glory. We mentioned before trying to put ourselves in David's shoes. What a shame, what a reproach it would be to be a father a very prominent one, a public figure whose children are so rebellious. David wasn't the only one in Scripture who had these kind of problems. You remember Eli, his sons were horribly wicked. They were ashamed to their father. Part of David's problem with his sons was due to his own failure and lack in parenting. Yes, and you can see that in his story, but that wouldn't diminish the shame. You could imagine him wanting to crawl into a hole and die. How in the world do you face the nation that you are called to represent and lead when your own children have no faith in you? It's not that they are just being, you know, irresponsible and squandering their inheritance and living off your dime. It's far worse than that. They are challenging God's institution of your own authority. They want to unseat you as king of the nation. And as David endured under these circumstances, you can see how his glory as a king was threatened in just about every way. What credibility do I have to presume to lead these people, he must have thought. Who am I to stand before these people and pretend to have the ability to lead them when my own sons won't follow my direction? And David, his credibility... His reputation and his own glory was assaulted on every side. Where did he find refuge under such shame, under such horrible circumstances? Well, he found refuge not in his own glory, but in the glory of the Lord. And this, saints, is an effective defense. If you ever feel shamed in such a way that you are afraid to show your face in public because of situations that are principally the same as what David endured, maybe something of your own doing, maybe your own children, anything. Be content to know that ultimately, whatever you are going through, you can place your faith that if the Lord is glorified, I can receive good and I can receive bad from Him. Only you be glorified, Lord. And somewhere in that confession and that statement of faith is a security and peace that this world and its circumstances could never provide to you. Only Lord be my glory. And then thirdly, in effective defense, is the Lord as the lifter of my head. But you, O Lord, are my shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. The lifter of my head phrase is a poetic one that speaks to encouragement. What will lift our heads up? What will give us another spring in our step? Restore the joy to our heart when we're so forlorn under these type of circumstances. Well, again, this effective defense against the enemy is placed solely on the Lord. Lord, you are my encouragement. I would just remind us too that oftentimes as we're going through a trial, we imagine the circumstances changing in such a way that will be encouraging. That is, we defer our joy upon evidence that things will change for what we consider better. 
But for David, before his son ever repented, or before he ever got back his seat of authority and his throne, and before the circumstances were settled and stable, before he was able to see Solomon ruling after him in his glory, which he may have never seen, David confessed faith that the Lord was the lifter of his head. He could be encouraged even under these circumstances if he put his faith that his defenses were in the hand of the Lord, not in circumstances changing and not in the, even the subduing of the enemies around him in a way that he would like to see. Number three, the logic of faith. So David has stated the degrees of opposition which are horrible and compounded and exponentially opposed to him. And he explains in a three-part manner in verse 3, the effective defenses against their onslaught and their aggression. And then verses 4 through 6, I call this section the logic of faith. David explains in this poem why he can feel this way. In verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I laid down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So someone might ask of David during this time, when he's a fugitive from his own son, how in the world can you break out your harp under these circumstances? I don't understand. What is the basis for you singing a worship song under this kind of oppression? David gives a three-part answer again. He recalls his past. He had cried aloud to the Lord. He cried aloud to the Lord. And he answered him from his holy hill. He lay down and slept. I awoke again for the Lord sustained me. And consequently, or therefore, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who had set themselves around me, or set themselves against me all around. I think there are two key phrases to understanding this poem. And the first one is understanding His holy hill. The second one would be understanding salvation belongs to the Lord. And they are related. It's an incredibly powerful statement when David says, in working through this reason why he is content And faith-filled, even under this oppression, in verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy hill. He would remind us that the holy hill represented Zion. Zion was a geographical center. It was the seat of God's presence with His people. It represented, in the culture of Israel, the reconciliation of God and man. If you wanted to meet with the Lord and commune with Him, if you wanted to be in right relationship with the God of the universe, there was only one place at that time in all the world where that took place. And it was in Zion, the holy hill, Jerusalem, the temple. It was an earthly picture of the exclusivity of our salvation. This picture, this geographical center of worship, later gives way to our center, Christ. Just as Zion, the holy hill, God's temple, and His decree of this is how you can know me, and this is how you can witness my power, was exclusive to Israel and exclusive to that location. Just as that was the case then, it still is the case today. But our salvation is exclusively in Christ. 
And this is the new covenant fulfillment of the old covenant picture. What did Jesus tell the woman at the well? She said, you argue, or she was questioning about where to worship. Do we worship here? Do we worship there? And Jesus said, the day is coming when you will neither worship on neither, in neither place. But those who worship me will worship me in spirit and in truth. The geographic center of worship moves from a temple, a geographic location, to man's heart in Christ alone. And consequently, we see the imagery through the New Testament describing Jesus Christ as our chief cornerstone of our faith. Him being the tree and us being the branches. Everything built on Him. Everything stemming from Him. He is our Zion. He is our holy hill. And for David, not knowing exactly what all would entail in the future, in faith confesses he is secure under oppression because he has experienced salvation from God's holy hill. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. You and I can say the same. Under extreme oppression, we can say, I cried to to the Lord for salvation And he answered me in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. This is the logic of faith. When we're ever in doubt that the enemy of our soul might even call into question the very nature of our salvation, what do we do? We return to a moment, like some of us had last week, of baptism. But more than that, what baptism represents, born-again experience, meeting Christ face-to-face, The moment of realization where we saw in our mind's eye, in the spirit realm, our sins rolled over on Jesus Christ and ourself and our future liberated in his death and our heaven secure in his resurrection. Many would tell us today that faith is not logical at all, that faith is an abandonment from reason. I, I would challenge that. I would say that faith is not a departure from reason. David moves very logically to his position of confidence, but he does so with a different premise. Faith applies reasons starting with an accurate premise. And when you begin with Jesus Christ as Lord, you can make all the application in the world, and it will lead you to confidence, security, and unshakable faith, even when your own family turns against you. David started with his own salvation. That occurred at the place where God meets man. And secondly, He lay down and slept and awoke, and the Lord sustained him. This kind of realization will give you peace. We might think of this time when David slept in such peace as an amazing testimony of confidence and security in the Lord. Even though he was chased by his enemies, he was able to sleep soundly. I think it might mean just a little more than that. And I would encourage you to consider this formula. Take your age. And you work this out later with pen and paper, if you're like me and not a math whiz. Take your age, divide it by four. That's to account for leap years. Then take your age and multiply it, or then add that to your age multiplied by 365. That will give you how many days the Lord has sustained you. Where his power was evidenced in each waking morning. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. In other words, perhaps as David is moving through the logic of faith, he's saying that if my salvation secure in Christ wasn't enough, and it is, I have this additional testimony to think about and meditate on of the faithfulness of my God. 
It is his power and his power alone that woke me up this morning, that gave me breath in my lungs, that aroused my soul from the sleep of night and gave me another day. My age divided by four added to my age multiplied by 365 gives me that many reasons to celebrate the grace and the keeping power of my God. And on that testimony and a million other things to consider, I can have faith under these circumstances that if the Lord wants me to live to see tomorrow, there is no no force in hell that will prevent me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around, which begs the question, which would you rather have? The thousands of people having faith in you and you having no faith in God? Or thousands of faithless people opposed to you and you remaining firm in your faith in God. You see, numbers do not ensure our future or security. Though men lie to themselves that they do, they do not. We need not be afraid even if thousands of people reject us when we consider that it is the Lord that woke us up this morning and those who set themselves against us all around will be ineffective against Him and against His purposes in us. And then fourth point in this message, David closes his song with courageous requests. He says in verses 7 and 8, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. There's three cries that David gives, or David brings before the Lord three requests, three petitions. Arise, O Lord. And then secondly, save me, O my God. And then the last one, your blessing be upon your people. But interwoven in these three requests are three confessions, declarations of the authority and the power and the sovereign control of our God. He says, in and amongst these requests, you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked, and salvation belongs to the Lord. As we consider this forceful, forceful poem that emphasizes faith under extreme hardship, we can see that before David even gets to his, position, his petitions, he has reinforced his faith with the knowledge of who the Lord is and what the Lord has done. He has allowed this worship time to cause the source of his meditation to move from the shame and the danger of his surroundings to the source and security he has in Christ. And we can do the same. And when we get to the end of our meditation, we can bring our requests before the Lord, but they can come in a whole different attitude. You see, David, as he asks that the Lord would save him, it's not like the desperate plea of a dying man who says, in his attitude, if you don't do it, I don't know what I'll do. A kind of weak and feeble cry for help, small in faith, a last-ditch effort to be rescued. It doesn't seem that way as David brings his thoughts to a conclusion. Because even as he says, save me, O Lord, he includes in the next phrase, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. And as he says, your blessing be upon your people, pleading with the Lord to remember his covenants, to remember his anointed. In the same sentence, he confesses that salvation belongs to the Lord. 
So these are courageous requests. Requests that when brought to the Lord are more of a testimony to His faith than a sign of weakness. They're requests that come at the end of David's meditations and remember the faithfulness of the Lord in the past that reorder His thoughts, His heart, and His affections on the Savior of His soul. And he thinks at this point less about the power of the enemy and more about the power of his God. And this is evident when David says that the very teeth of those who would like to devour your source of future hope are shattered from the sockets, are spilled out on the ground as those who propose or who assume that they can, because they can threaten our life, steal our faith in God, are brought to nothing. What does this look like in our time? In David's time, he did prevail over his sons. He was reinstated in his authority. You know, there was, at least in some sense, conclusion to these horrible situations he went through. But he didn't know how it would end. And I'm sure the ending is not one he would have chosen. He wanted to build a temple. God had decreed he would be a man of war, essentially. His son built the temple. In our circumstances, in our lives, we can find ourselves in a very similar situation where answers to prayer and requests are long-standing. And we would be greatly encouraged and our head would be lifted if we could just see some of those answers to prayer. This morning in the coffee shop, Melanie and I were sharing about another baptism. It didn't occur in this church, but a church up the street of a man who was baptized last week as well, maybe two weeks ago. Melanie had talked to his mother who said, I would have never imagined this day 40 years ago. This faithful woman of God presumably had been praying for a wayward son for 40 years. Originally, I had at the end of this message a few illustrations, quick suggestions of what it looks like to stay in this attitude of faith. And I said a line, you know, something along the lines of, in the 20th year of praying for a wayward child, When they come to the Lord, at that point you can see the teeth of the wicked shattered in their own mouth. But I expanded my phone faith to to include the number 40. And I thought that was a powerful example of a faith like David. And when you consider these moments in Scripture and moments in your own life that don't look like a strong, powerful army, that on the surface they don't look like we have much power at all over the enemy, Yet if our faith is in the Lord, if our confidence is in Him, if the Lord is our confession, as our shield, if we are content to glory in His renown and in His name, and if we look to Him and Him alone as the lifter of our head, it can give us great grace to endure for the long haul. And I submit to you that in the eyes of Stephen himself, as he was killed for his faith, when they were opened and he saw into the heavenly realm, and the last stone struck him. What a powerful example of the teeth of the enemy shattered. Those religious rulers of the day wanted to reinstate themselves as the arbiters of truth, as the grounds for sanctification. They were losing their power of control over the people because of this bold gospel that was attaching to Christ alone, the power of salvation. And they were, sh- they, and they were shuddering and quaking with fear, lest they lose their position of authority. And though they killed that man, they did not kill the work of the Lord. And it is continuing today. Here we are, 
in the lineage of Stephen, declaring his gospel and his lordship thousands of years later. Truly the teeth of the enemy are shattered. You can take my worldly things. You can take my life. But you cannot take my faith in God. A young man, a young woman who says no under peer pressure, who simply walks away while they are mocked and maybe ostracized from the in crowd. Someone who worships, who sings a worship song when times are tight and they're not sure where their next paycheck is coming from. Maybe a quiet heart that can fall asleep at night and sleep the same amount of hours knowing that Wall Street, their own 401k is in a state of upheaval. Any of these examples where we are under pressure, but we find our hope in Christ are one example that in that endurance, in that simple faith, and putting in the Lord's hands the results and putting in His hands our future is an example of what it looks like to have the teeth of the enemy shattered. And having His intentions to devour our faith and to dispirit our future prove ineffective. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is not man's to give. It is not man's to take. Your blessing be upon your people. You have answered me from your holy hill. Arise, O Lord, and save me. As David makes these requests and these confessions about the Lord, you can see how it allowed him in his extreme hardship to gain the perspective of faith. And for us this morning, it might help us to do the same. Oppression versus salvation. Never mind society. Never mind the forces that are allied against us. All we have to do is remember our holy hill moment. Remember the moment when we were saved. That way, regardless of the degrees of opposition we face right now, our defenses will be effective because He will be our shield. And in Him we will glory. And He will be the, and he will be the lifter of our head. And finally, as we close and consider what our future holds, we can ask of the Lord that He would bring in that wayward son or daughter. We can ask of the Lord that He would change our circumstances in a way that we wish for, but we can do so confessing that it is the Lord who has authority and power over the enemy of our souls, that salvation belongs to Him, and that He can break the teeth of the wicked. Let's close in prayer. Father, once again, as we see in your word, the source of refuge, I pray, Lord, that our heart's reaction time would be much shorter, Lord, from the time we feel discouraged and distressed to the time we run to your scripture as a source of hope and encouragement. I pray, Lord, that in this, the testimony of a heart quieted in the midst of the struggle would boldly proclaim to the world around that our faith and future are held by a hand unseen to them, Lord Jesus, but in faith, it's real to us. You are, Lord Jesus, the arbiter of salvation, the author and finisher of our faith, our complete and total shield, the glory and the lifter of our head, and in you we can rest assured and be secure. Lord, if there are any this morning who might feel the stress, the shame, the anxiety, Lord, and the oppression that David himself felt in any measure, I pray that they would find in your word a source of hope, and that you would cause their prayer life, Lord Jesus, to be sharpened and quickened and bolstered by the truth of your word 
to be a courageous request. Lord, a petition for help that comes with a confession of your power to do so. Lord, I pray that as your people endure, even in this dark hour, that our faith, Lord Jesus, should the world and those closest to us be against us, that our faith, Lord, would show that there is a power worth living for and more effective than anything that the enemy has in his arsenal to ensure that our future is secure in Christ. Help us, Lord Jesus, as we draw applications in our own lives. And I pray the witness and testimony of your secure and hopeful and faith-filled church would continue until the day of your soon return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.